0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for this week coming up and all the opportunities that we will have to minister to one another and to the world. Thank you, Father, for sending your spirit to minister to us today. I pray that your word would speak with power by your spirit to us and that you would give us ears to hear. And Father, I pray that the result of this Message in this text would be that we would see afresh the preeminence of Christ and glorify him in a manner that is worthy of him and to do it for our own joy. Lord, these things we ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, it's Christmas time once again, and as every year we get to Experience the joyful privilege of gathering together to worship Christ, the newborn king, and when we gather to worship at christmas time it 's frankly hard to imagine that anyone would be reluctant to entrust their life, body and soul, to the Savior the lord jesus christ and that 's because we have tasted repeatedly, and we have discovered that the Lord is good, and that His promises are true. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and all of his promises toward us are yes and amen. And we have benefited from the lavishness of his past grace, and so it seems reasonable to us that we would throw all of our weight and all of our trust on his promises of future grace, grace for the next moment, grace for the next hour, grace for the next day, and and week, and month, and year. I suspect in in a cultural moment such as this, there are many who, however, are on the fence as it relates to Jesus. In our pluralistic society, there are legions of voices that take exception to the exclusive gospel that declares that there is one God and one Savior sufficient to meet our every need. To say that Jesus spoke with divine authority when he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes unto the Father except through me, this is to offend the spirit of the age. And not only in our time and and place, but even this morning as we heard from Chris Johnson, uh, the same thing happening in The little villages in Mexico where he is serving, and probably ten times more than what we experience here. Our ancient brothers and sisters in Colossae lived in a culture where it was almost universally accepted that there were many gods and many paths to the gods. The true God, however, who spoke long ago, at many times and in many ways, in the fathers, by the prophets, in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son. And because of his great love for sinners, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, stepped down from heaven and took on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. The Apostle John says it this way, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh flesh and dwelt among us and so to the church in Galatia Paul said when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman and that woman as you well know was a young girl by the name of Mary who was betrothed to her husband Joseph and this is what Christmas is all about this is what Christmas is all about. It's about the incarnation of God. Are you familiar with the word incarnation? I wonder how many of you understand what incarnation is. Well, I looked it up this week. Incarnation comes from the Latin caro, which means flesh. Incaro means in the flesh. The idea here is that there is something that you would not be able to see unless it were in the flesh or in a human being. And that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have God incarnate. We have God taking the form of a human being, a man. It's about, this Christmas is about the transcendent Lord of heaven humbling himself to enter the world the way that we all entered the world. Namely, by birth, as a helpless and dependent baby. Now, of course, I realize that you know these things. Every Christian knows them. But there are always some who question whether this Jesus, born in poverty and obscurity, really has the credentials to rightly be known as the savior of the world. Is he the savior of the world? How can we be sure? Well, the wise men seemed to be duly impressed with this child. Simeon and Anna at the temple thought that he was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. And when he was 12 years old at the temple, the, 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 the teachers in the temple were amazed at his grasp of truth and his questions and his answers. When he became a rabbi, none of the brilliant scholars in Israel were his equal. And most impressive of all, he was able to heal the sick. and He was able to raise the dead. And none of his contemporaries, not even his enemies, even made an attempt to say that those miracles weren't true they were. Nevertheless, while the ability to perform miracles is impressive, it doesn't necessarily qualify one to be the savior of the world. And so we come back around to the question, what qualifies Jesus to be the sufficient savior of the world? A sufficient savior for all who would believe. Why should you have confidence that entrusting your life forever to Jesus is wise and safe. Well, thankfully, the apostle Paul answers that question for us. Inspired by the Spirit of God himself, he happily takes up the question by peeling back the veil of time and space to reveal who Jesus was and is even before his 33 years of life in the world. How will Paul accomplish this? Well, he will persuade us that even as an infant in a lowly cattle stall, Jesus possessed all the credentials necessary to qualify him as the eternal Savior. In fact, I would say more than enough, far more than enough. Well, how will he do it? How will he do this? He will do it by pointing us to Jesus relative to his unique relationship with five things. Number one, he has unique relationship with the Father. Secondly, he unique relationship with the cosmos. Thirdly, his unique relationship with the angels. Number four, his unique relationship with the church. And number five, his unique relationship with the future. Now, if it sounds like I'm speaking to you rather quickly this morning, it's because I've got five points to cover and no more time than I have usually. So just bear with me, try to keep up, and I'll try to be as plain as I can as we work through this text. Now, I love to preach about Christmas from this text, Colossians chapter 1. I love to preach about this or through this text because it provides the perfect foundation upon which all biblical claims concerning Jesus securely stand. And let's begin, as always, by standing together in honor of God's word and read this text. Again, this is another one of those texts. I think I read it a couple of weeks ago uh, before the morning prayer. But it's one of those texts that basically preaches itself. Nevertheless, follow along with me as I read from the ESV. Paul writes, by the blood of his cross. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Paul's goal in this passage is to magnify in our hearts the preeminence of Christ. You know, so many times when we preach, Paul gives us so many practical topics, and he wants you to do something. He wants you to get busy. He wants you to get out and and talk to people or, or repent of something or whatever. And here in this text... He really wants us to worship, to glory in Christ Jesus because of the revelation of Christ Jesus in his word. And so let's begin with the first unique relationship that Jesus has. And it is a unique relationship. It's Jesus' relationship with his Father. Jesus' relationship with his Father. Paul says of Jesus in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image here is icon or icon. If you've had an opportunity to visit a Russian Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox church or even a Catholic church, you would find many pictures of the saints, the apostles, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. These pictures are, are commonly referred to as icons, and that gives us a hint of what Paul has in mind. Jesus is the icon, the likeness or image of God, but Paul doesn't mean that he's merely a picture or a stamp that resembles God. Rather, Jesus, and if you're taking notes, you should write this down. Jesus is the icon because he is the Invisible God made visible. He is the invisible God made visible. In other words, he is that person of the triune Godhead who came to live among men. That we could see him and hear him and touch him and many would be healed by him. We know Paul intends to tell us that Jesus, the man, is actually the eternal I am because this very letter, in this very letter, he says things like in chapter 2, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the fact of his eternal nature is borne out in in other words through Paul. For example, in Philippians 2, verse 6, we read that before, becoming, before coming to earth, he existed in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, listen to this word, he is the exact imprint, the Greek word here is character, and that's how you say it I think in, in Greek, character, it's his exact character of his nature, And in John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And you remember how Jesus responded? He said, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the invisible God made visible, J.I. Packer concludes with, with the backing of 2,100 years of Christian theology that the Christmas message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger was God. And since we're talking about Jesus' relationship with the Father, it may be enlightening to step back and revisit the verses 12 through 13. Look at those. Verses 12 and 13, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of, listen carefully, of his beloved Son. What I want you to see here is that Paul's emphasis is that the Father's relationship with the Son is not focused on their relationship of mission, though there is that, or their relationship of nature, and there is that. But rather, the focus in Paul's mind is their relationship of love. The Father delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You see, Jesus is not merely the Father's only Son. He is the Father's beloved Son. More literally, He is the Son of the Father's love. He is the Son of the Father's love. And everything God has ever done in the cosmos, He has done for the express purpose of exalting the Son of His love. Namely, Jesus. You know, when you think deeply about this, Jesus' relationship with the Father, when you think deeply about that relationship, you can't help but come to the conclusion that this is the only credential Jesus ever needed to be the Savior of the world. He is the invisible God made visible. He is the icon of God. Everything else is secondary. And that's why your decision to entrust your life and eternal future is is wise. To entrust it it all to Jesus Christ is wise and safe. But there's more. Jesus' relationship with the Father is the first and most important, but there are other reasons. There are other indicators that he is qualified. For example, point number two, his relationship with the cosmos is unique. Nobody has a relationship with the cosmos like Jesus' relationship with the cosmos. And by cosmos, I mean everything on planet Earth and everything that exists outside of planet Earth. The moon and the stars, the handiwork of God. It's, it's finger work to God. It, it, it was no big deal... To him. It was no great expenditure of energy when he spoke, and everything burst into being. And so Paul says of Jesus in verse fifteen He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now the idea of Christ being the firstborn of all creation is often misunderstood. A number of cults use this verse to suggest that Jesus was a created being, but that's not at all what Paul means here. And if you were a Jewish person, you would know that intuitively. You wouldn't have to have a preacher explain it like we do today. The term firstborn comes from the word prototokos, or prototokos, which is harder to say. It means not the created one, but rather the one who is highest in rank. This was commonly understood among the Jews. In Israel, the firstborn son inherited special rights and privileges because of his birthright. He received a double portion of the estate and he received the right of leadership over the family. But the person who received the right of the firstborn was not always, listen carefully, the one who received the right of the firstborn was not always the one who was born first. Joseph, for example. You remember the Old Testament character, Joseph, who was the 11th son of Jacob, and yet the status of being the firstborn was transferred to him, Genesis 48 Verses 20 through 22, we won't, won't have time to look at that this morning, but you can later. Likewise, David, who would become king, he was the youngest. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons. In Psalm 89, God promises, I will make him the firstborn of the highest of the kings of Israel. In his case, David, or perhaps David, future son, the Messiah, would be given the right of the firstborn. And so you see, the one who holds the rank of firstborn is preeminent. And this is the key phrase. It's the key phrase for the whole book of Colossians, but it's certainly key here. The one who holds the rank of firstborn is preeminent over everything else. In the verse before us, verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation in the sense. That as God's firstborn and only begotten Son, all creation is His inheritance. And He is preeminent over it all. The author of Hebrews says it like this In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. He doesn't get a double portion, He doesn't get half of the estate. He gets it all. It all belongs to him. And Paul explains that the entire cosmos belongs to Jesus because he actually created it. He says, For by him all things were created, whether visible or invisible. If it exists, it was created by God the Son. Sometimes the visible creation is absolutely awesome and beautiful. We see its power, we see its intricacy, but there are many things in the created order that are invisible. For example, our eyes can't perceive the magnetic field that encompasses the earth, but it's there And every day it shields us from the dangerous radiation that comes from the sun. We can't see it, but it's there. We can't see radio waves or microwaves or sound waves, but we use them all the time. I'm using them right now to preach to you. And it was created by Christ. Without the help of a powerful microscope, we can't see single-celled creatures or germs or molecules. But they are there And they exist because Jesus made them. By the way, John the Apostle makes this perfectly clear when in the first chapter of his gospel he says this, All things were made by him. How many things? All things. All things were made by him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. If there is something that has come into being, which is everything, Jesus brought it into being. He is not only your Savior, he is the creator. This is exactly what, what we see in Colossians 1 verse 16. By him all things were created. The word all things in the Greek, you know what it means? <laughs> you know by now, Right? It means all things. It means everything. It means the whole thing. That is, by him, the whole universe of things were created. If there is anything in the universe that has come into being, it it has come into being because Jesus brought it into being. And what Paul is revealing to us is that Jesus Christ is not just the Son of God and one with God. He is Creator God. And if you jump ahead with me to into the end of verse 16, Paul continues in this vein by declaring that the universe and everything in it were created by him and for him. Moreover, he existed before any of them. Paul declares in verse 17, he is before all things, that is, before there was any created thing in the cosmos, there was God. There was Jesus. Jesus is and always has been. Not only that, but the reason the cosmos doesn't go flying off into, create, into chaotic oblivion is because verse 17 says, In him all things hold together. Up until recently, modern science has known about this force that holds all things together, but they didn't understand it, and they still don't understand it. They used to simply call it the strong force. The strong force. They had no other name for it. They have a new name for it, but they still don't understand it. Somehow, all things hold together. Well, you don't have to be a scientist or a philosopher all you have to do is read your Bible. In him, all things hold together. Why, why does the earth maintain a perfect axis so that we don't burn up or freeze to death? Why does the earth maintain the perfect distance from the sun? Why do the planets and heavenly bodies fly in perfect orbit so that their movements have always been measurable and predictable? Answer? because Jesus not only created them, he actively sustains them. And listen, we are not deists. We are not deists who think that God, we don't think of God as the great watchmaker who created this watch and wound it up and set it on the table to let it wind down. No, no, everything is going as planned Everything is going just as God said it would go. You look at, uh, at climate change. You look at uh, the fires and the melting of the, of the, uh, of the ice and the glaciers. And all, Listen, all of that, all of that is in the hand of God the creator. And he has told us from the beginning how things would go. And they are going exactly as planned. We are not deists who think that God just wound us up. And he's watching us from a distance. He's not watching us from a distance. He's absolutely involved in every aspect of life. What is Jesus' relationship with the cosmos? Only this, that he owns it because he made it. Therefore, he is the firstborn of all creation. That is, he has the credentials of ownership because they are his. They were made by him and they were made for him. And one day, everything will be reconciled in him. And so, when we see the beauty and majesty of creation, perhaps we should stop for a moment with our families, with our kids, with our grandkids... And we should look at that bit of creation that resonates the glory of God and say to our families, oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord, not Christ the baby so much. It's Christ the creator and Lord. And this brings us to Jesus' third credential, his third unique relationship Christ's relationship to the angels. Christ's relationship to the angels. Paul writes in verse 16, By him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Do those words sound a little cryptic? A little vague? They probably should, unless you have studied these things before. Paul helps us understand what he, what he means by this by, as we look at his other letters, especially we can look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, where we learn that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Father seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above, now listen to these words, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And Paul uses those same terms in Ephesians chapter 6, where he teaches us about how to buckle on the armor for spiritual warfare. And these terms, thrones, dominions, rulers, our authorities, are, are found there. And they're used almost exclusively. Every time they're used, they're used for angelic and demonic beings. Again, beings that we cannot see. This was a big deal to the Colossians because the pagans in that ancient city worshipped angels. And there were some who claimed to be Christians who wanted the believers at the church of Colossae to come and worship angels with them. In chapter 2, verse 18 of Colossians, Paul warned, Do not let anyone disqualify you by insisting on the worship of angels. Jesus is superior to the angels. He is preeminent above the angels because he created them. They love him. They worship him. They serve him. And by the way, contrary to that little figurine that probably stands on the top of your tree, there is no place in the Bible where an angel appears as a woman. So go home and change that. <laughs> Nevertheless, on the night Jesus was born, a multitude of the heavenly host appeared to the shepherds, declaring, or shouting, or singing, we don't know, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Well, this is a charming Christmas scene, but we should remember That angels and other members of the invisible heavenly host are imposing figures. Which is why every time one of them appeared, the first words out of their mouth were what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because you're about to be afraid. (laughs) Witness those who stood over the throne of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. How do you even read that passage without trembling? Who stood over the throne of the Lord who, who covered, th- these angelic beings covered their feet, they covered their torso, they covered their faces in the presence of God and they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they called out, the foundation of the very temple itself shook like an earthquake. The whole earth is full of his glory. This was a terrifying scene. It was terrifying. And we know that because the first thing that Isaiah did was he threw himself on the floor and began pronouncing curses upon himself because he had seen God. In the presence of his angels, and yet, the Son of God, who was seated on that throne, the Apostle John tells us in John twelve forty one, is none other than the Sovereign King, who would be born into the world and given the name Jesus. You know what Jesus means? Yeshua saves. The point is, Christ is not an angel. He never was an angel, never be an angel. He is preeminent over the angels and always has been. He is the creator of angels. They bow before him. He is their creator. And they exist for his pleasure. And so we have looked at Jesus' relationship with the Father, his relationship with the cosmos, his relationship with the angels, and now Paul tells us about Christ's relationship with the church. This is magnificent after you've seen these other things. Jesus' relationship with the church, I mean, after talking about his relationship with the Father and with the cosmos and with the angels, you would think, well, you know, the church is a little thing. It's no big deal. can't be any big deal. I mean, look at us. We're a mess. How does he get anything done through us? And yet here's what the Holy Spirit says, verses 18 and 19. And, as if enough had not already been said, and he is head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, here it is again, in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. You know what our, our church sign says out here? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is very intentional. We understand our role as followers of Christ. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Everything else is secondary. He is preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Jesus as head of the church tells us that of all the peoples of the earth, he set his exclusive affection on the church. He created her by giving her life. He purchased her by his death on the cross. He made an exclusive promise to her to be shared, not to be shared with outsiders. The promise is this that Those who believe in him, even if they die, yet they will live. They will have everlasting life. Indeed, death for them will not be an end, but merely the beginning of resurrection life in the presence of God. More importantly, in relationship to God. On what basis do members of the church receive eternal life? Well, they receive it Not by joining the church, but by grace, God's grace, through faith, as a gift from God. They get it from Christ Himself. He who promised them resurrection is, in fact, the firstborn of the dead. There's that term again. Notice once again that that Paul calls Jesus the prototokos, except this, this time it's not the prototokos of creation. Now it's prototokos of those who have been raised from the dead. He means all who will be, of all who will be raised and have been raised, Christ is preeminent over them all. He wasn't the first one to rise again from the dead. There were some instances in the Old Testament where God raised people from the dead. Lazarus was risen from the dead. And then Jesus was risen from the dead, but he wasn't first in the order. He was first in preeminence. He is the king. And so what makes Jesus preeminent over the cosmos, the angels, and the church? Only this, verse 19, that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. Not half of God, not three-quarters of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here's an allusion or a hint back to what I said earlier, that this is God's beloved son. He was pleased for all of his deity to dwell in the man, Jesus. How do we know Jesus has the credentials to be the savior of the world? We know it because Jesus' relationship with the father His relationship with the cosmos, his relationship with the angels, his relationship with us, the church. And finally, we see it because of Christ's unique relationship with the future. This is amazing. I mean, all of this is amazing. And here we read this. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. By the way, when the angels sang, glory to God in, in the highest, and peace among men, that peace is the opposite of war. And it isn't for all men, it's not what the text says, for those with whom he is pleased. You can't earn that, you can't buy it, you can't work your way into it, you have to receive it by grace. Perhaps you've never considered this before, but Jesus' death on the cross not only atoned for our sins and exalted Christ as the only mediator and Savior, it also is the basis upon which Jesus will restore all creation and make every wrong right. I mean, don't we long for that like never before? I mean, our generation... Don't we long for everything to be made right? Don't we long for everything to be put in its proper place? I take Paul's statement here to be eschatological. It hasn't happened yet. This is part of his promise of future grace. When God's plan to redeem a people for Christ's own possession is finally complete, the Father will do one more thing to exalt the Son. He will give him a new heaven and a new earth. The curse will be crushed. The rebellion will be conquered. Everything will be put in its place. You say, will everyone everyone be saved? No. God has never made that promise. But they will discover that they will be put in their proper place for rejecting the Son of God. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. That along with forgiving our sins, he is also made known to us, listen carefully, he has he revealed to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In other words, on that day everything will find its proper orbit around the blazing glory of the son of god. Again Romans 8:19 through 23. Paul talks about this again and again as do the other writers of scripture. Romans 8:19 For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. There's going to be a day when the sons of God are revealed. And on that day, all kinds of things will happen. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, namely God himself, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan within ourselves as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, there is a sense there as so much of scripture there is this sense of the already and the not yet. There is the already that you have been adopted. But you have not been brought to your home yet. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Right, cup family? <laughs> You're living that right now. Adopted? Yes and not living yet in the Father's house. This is what God plans. And all of it is waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons. All of it is waiting for Christ to come and fulfill all of those promises, and in that day, the whole cosmos will be made right. This is an amazing revelation. The finished work of Christ on the cross guarantees not only our eternal salvation, but also the restoration of all that God has created that has been harmed by sin and the curse. No longer will man fear the earth or anything in creation. No longer will animals be a terror to us or us to them. As the prophet Isaiah promised in Isaiah 11, one day the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf. I take that to mean the fattened calf is different than the calf because the fattened calf is ready to be eaten. And yet there'll be no one to eat him. And a little child shall lead them. and They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What if, I mean, think about this. In this world full of sin and whatever is here that is corrupting the world, what if every Christian in the world lived the way God calls us to live in his book, I mean, every minute, in every circumstance. I mean, wouldn't that be glorious? But that's not what he's talking about here. One day, every human being on earth will be like Jesus. Not in deity, but in his humanity, perfect. Of course, the nations say that they desire no more war. God promises that that day is coming, but not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Paul speaks of these things by reconciling. He speaks of things being reconciled to Christ. He's not teaching universalism. Rather, he's showing us that the preeminence of Christ is so magnificent that in the end, everything will be rendered in its proper order. The heavens and the earth will be restored. Sin will be banished forever. Believers will finally experience the fullness of eternal life in the presence of Christ. The unbelieving will fall under God's righteous judgment and Christ will rule as Lord over all. As Paul famously said in the book of Philippians, that at the name of Jesus on that day, every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Isn't this a beautiful picture? This is Jesus coming to earth. His people exalt him. The Spirit exalts him. God exalts him. And then God gives to Christ everything that belongs to him. And so let there be no mistake. Jesus Christ possesses all the credentials necessary to be the Savior of the world. And so what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for, my friend? Today would be the perfect day to fully surrender your life to his rule, to experience the fullness of joy that comes from being forgiven of all of your sins. It could be for you today if you would receive it. You can't earn it, you can't buy it. You can only receive it by grace, through faith, as a precious gift from a gracious God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for these truths that you reveal to us in various scriptures, but certainly here in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Father, may it be your letter to us today May the focus of our heart and the delight of our hearts, the preeminent delight of our heart this week, be the person and work and glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may it be true of us. Help us, Father, to discipline ourselves to that end this week and to live in the joy of it and to let our light so shine before men that they will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Oh, Father, do it, we pray, for your glory. But we pray it in Jesus' name.